Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich, and we have structured How Story Works conversations to include instructional, fix-it, interview, and FAQ episodes. And today's episode is an author interview with our special guest, Luke Arnold. Luke Arnold was born in Australia and has spent the last decade acting his way around the world, playing iconic roles such as Long John Silver in the Emmy-winning Black Sails and his award-winning turn as Michael Hutchins in the NXS miniseries Never Tear Us Apart. When he isn't performing, Luke is a screenwriter, director, novelist, and ambassador for Save the Children Australia. The Last Smile in Sunder City, released in February from Orbit, is his debut novel. Yes, Luke hired me to look at the novel some years ago, and I loved it. It is a fun fantasy noir story, and there's a sequel coming out this fall, which I am so excited about. So let's not waste any more time getting to the interview. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right. So we are here today with our special guest, Luke Arnold. Luke, thank you so much for joining us here today. We are so excited to talk to you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Now, um, (laughs) a couple of years ago, I got this email from somebody who had purchased a critique from me and his name was Luke Arnold. And at the time I was watching Black Sales and I was like, oh my God, how weird. I just got a client whose name is the same as this guy on on, uh, Black Sales. And you and I had like, you know, uh, started working together a little bit and I had, um, and you mentioned that you were an actor and I was like, now, wait a minute. I'm like, you the guy from Black Sales? And you're like, yeah, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a little bit of starstruck and then I started reading your book, The Last Smile in Sender City. Um, And it was so good. I was just completely drawn into it. Um, the, the combination of noir and fantasy was so cool and interesting. And the character of Fetch um, was so much more than just like a, you know, a, a grungy, disaffected, classic noir detective. Um, it was so much fun to, to read and I had such a great time with it. Um, so it was really exciting to be able to to kind of like help you work with it and then to watch you as you go through this whole publication. Now, here we are like, I don't know, three years later and it's finally out. How does it feel after that whole long process to have that done? Yeah, it's, it's kind of surreal because it is, um, yeah, because first of all, you're one of the first people I really worked on it with. Um, I guess there's so many stages you go through at the beginning where you've, if you're not a writer and have kind of written your first thing and kind of, I didn't really have that community of writers around me. You know, I had a couple of friends who were authors, but it's a big ask asking anyone, like like I've worked on some screenplays with people before and reading a screenplay, you can bash that out in, you know, 40 minutes if you want someone to go, hey, is this all right? Mm -hmm. And so that first process of finding, when you've written something and finding people um, that are in the industry that are writers or working in publishing and can, you can actually go like, Hey, I think this is good. <laughs> like, <laughs> am I on the right track and get those, um, get those opinions are really crucial. So you were one of the first people kind of in this world of writing that I could reach out to and went like, Hey, am I onto something here? Am I delusional? Um, so thank you again for all your advice and help in those early stages. Oh. And then that, yeah, it takes a while. And so that kind of began a very long process of, yeah, as you go through, 
you know, starts, yeah, giving it to friends with colleagues, tightening it up, handing it out to the first agents and publishers and then working on it with them. So, yeah, to finally, and essentially, like, even the sequel was written by the time this first right. one's come out into the world. So it is quite surreal, but it's really fun to have it out there and have people getting to know this world and this character and finding people who really respond to it in the way I hope they would. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I, I'm very glad to hear there is a sequel uh, because I just finished it. Uh, I listened to it on audio and, and your narration was so fantastic. It was such a fun listen. It's such a good book. But when it when I got to the end, I was like, but wait, like, wait. And <laughs> so I'm very glad to hear that, that there is a sequel coming out because uh, I want the rest of that of that story. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, well, glad to hear you up more and, and enjoyed it. it. It's always been an interesting juggling act where my intention to begin with was to write something that really felt like those, like Raymond Chandler, uh, Philip Marlowe stories, mm -hmm. which were kind of self-contained, you know, and, and essentially, you know, not lots happen, has to happen in those books. They're kind of very much, you know, you, he follows a trail and a, a few things tick over and, you know, you don't expect a lot of action really in those books, a couple of interesting scenes, but, and you're not expecting a lot of follow through as far as, you know, heaps of character development or much backstory or things to progress. Each of them are just like a little, you know, a little case with this particular detective that you like following. But because this is also fantasy, and then I think also the fact that I ended up publishing with Orbit, who, you know, a big fantasy sci-fi publisher that bring their like the current readers they have have certain expectations and fantasy readers have different expectations. So it has been a little, uh, it, there's been a little tightrope to walk as I go through this of how much to fulfill that, how much to stay true to the kind of detective genre, but how much to bring in the fantasy stuff, how much to tease what else could be coming, but how much to let them stand alone. So yeah, the first one really is, it, it is trying to fulfill both those worlds where it is just does just feel like one case that one, you know, man for hire is following while also giving enough taste of the fact that this, there is an evolution in this series that will keep um, stepping a bit deeper into the fantasy world as things go along. Yeah. I thought it was really yeah. neat. I loved the contrast between nature and industrialization in the book that you think of it, you know, a lot of people look at genre novels, right? You know, fantasy, noir, romance, mm. whatever. Right. And they tend to think it's just this one thing. So you've combined these two things together, but you also have, um, have a lot in the setting and in the general idea that, that dig much deeper into that. I mean, you're talking about kind of the, the, the conflicts uh, between people, people, um, you know, bigotry, um, so many things that you're tackling in this that, that have, it has so much more depth, I think, than people would expect from like a standard genre novel. Although I'm, I'm not one of those people. I know that genre does some good stuff, right? Like I know what yeah. genre does, but I think the expectation is usually, um, is usually a little, a little flatter that you just do this one thing that a particular genre does. So, um, so you're pulling in all of these extra things. Was that something that you intended to do to kind of like expand on what the genre typically does? Or was it just that this is where your inspiration led you? Yeah. Um, it was a little bit that I think, one of the things I love about genre uh, is that he, there's actually a freedom you get from writing in genre to explore things that really matter and that 
are very complicated that actually you can so easily, well, I can easily get kind of, you hit a lot of roadblocks if you try and explore things when you have to deal with, whether it's, you know, real um, cultures, real politics, one thing that, that can either become very dated quickly or you can just step into things that you that you start getting scared with every sentence going, am I, am I representing yeah, this culture correctly? <laughs> am I saying things like, do I actually believe what I'm saying? Where it, you actually get to explore really grand ideas and universal ideas and some complicated themes without, yeah, all those having to research every, what feels like sometimes every person in the world at every time and, and get really, I get really nervous about that. Um, and so that's kind of for me is why I feel like that's where genre is at its best, what it is exploring really deep things. Then for me, I think there was a certain thing that happened with this series, the fact it's a, like I wrote a short story that kind of involved fantasy noir mixing when I was in high school. Uh, I really loved film noir. I really loved those, yeah, so Chandler books and books of that era. And I, and then was kind of getting into fantasy too. So I loved this idea, but then I think between where I first like fell in love with that style, then to actually writing this properly for the first time, I, I guess maybe I started a bit of that, being able to examine what I thought was maybe cool about this kind of character when I was younger, as someone who's kind of jaded and cynical and this kind of romantic who's had some bad things happen. So now he's jaded about everything. And, and be able to analyze, yeah, maybe what I thought was interesting about that when I was younger, see maybe the problems with a character like that or wanting to be someone like that, what it is to be, to be broken in some way and, but want to do and, and struggle to kind of do good around you and be part of a community and, and all those things. Like, I guess that became really interesting to me and maybe was the reason I felt like I could actually turn this into a novel more than just a little genre mash um, was really analyzing that kind of character. And, you know, and, and yeah, it begins with the idea of, you know, how do you do good in a broken world where you feel broken yourself? Um, but that leads into a whole bunch of other areas about growing up, uh, about redemption, about relationships and all kinds of complicated things, which, um, you know, are probably just things that, yeah, the things that I think about on a daily basis and was able to stick them all into Fetch Phillips. No, I, I loved it. And I loved the the world building that you did because the, the fantasy parts of the book gave me all the things I would want from a fantasy novel and the case gave me everything I'd want from a detective novel. Um, I'm really curious how you came up with the ideas for this world because I read a lot of fantasy. This is unique and different, especially your idea of how dragons are made. And I want one. I've always wanted a dragon. When I read that, I was like, oh my God, that's the best explanation I've ever heard of where dragons come from. And I am so curious how you came up with those ideas. I, truthfully, with the first, the first kind of run I had of this, where a lot of this came from, I didn't do too much pre-planning. I really, I had the idea of, I think some part of it is this magical river beneath the planet. And so knowing that every creature would link back to that in some way. And so that's why a lot of it has to do with things either coming out the earth or how that magic leaks into, whether it's trees or rocks or mud or whatever it is. Um, so I, 
So I think that, you know, that then made sense for me with the drag, the idea that in certain areas this magic builds up, an animal goes in, <laughs> and over time it gets to become, that's again, how dragons are made, and that's why you can get different varieties. And it just kind of fitted my, I guess, my creation myth of this world being this magical river. Um, and But with all, most of the world building, I think the thing for me, that, that really let me run with most of the stuff was the fact that Fetch feels guilty that the magic is lost in this world and Fetch feels responsible for that happening, at least feels like he played a pretty decent part in that happening. So it meant for me that it never felt like Fetch was just explaining, like letting the reader in on, on how things came to be without it also being like tainted with, that awful guilt, which is really what he's struggling with in the first book. And so it just meant, for me, it kind of, once again, freed me to explore a lot of these things because I'm like, there's a bit of character in everything he has to describe, that he feels personally mm. connected to everything that existed that was once amazing that is now lost. Um, and so I think most of the world building really happened from me just taking him out on the street in my first drafts and having him wander to this part of town or to this area and letting him muse on and try and find, I guess in some ways it was looking for the most tragic thing I could find, knowing that would have the most emotional impact for him, which would hopefully make it more interesting for the reader. Um, and so some of that world building, you know, and then I found ways to go like, oh, that'll tie into the case this way. That's kind of interesting. Some things got relegated to later books or are still sitting in my documents of <laughs> things yet to be explained. But yeah, most of it really came out to begin with anyway, of just kind of taking him out on the streets, seeing where his mind went, seeing what he'd come across and then finding a way to tie that all together around the plot afterwards. Well, that kind of um, brings us into this, like, how do you work? You know, some people plan everything out ahead of time, you know, and then figure it all out and then go in to write it. Uh, other people, you know, just sit down at a blank page and start writing and just kind of see what happens, you know. Um, so what is your process like? Yeah, I look, I think it's going to be it's very different book to book so far. Mm -hmm. uh, and where the first one really was it's weird because I was mainly acting at that point um, and doing some kind of screenwriting stuff, but that would, it, it's the weird thing about acting is even if you're not on a job, you're looking at the next one or reading scripts or putting down auditions and it takes up so much time that a lot of my writing of The Last Smile happened in these fits and starts of me kind of claiming little moments of going, oh, I've okay, I don't have any lines to learn right now. I've got a little bit of time and just bashing it out in that moment. And so, like, I feel like I played my first novel like an accordion. Then after that, like, I just write it and then, like, cut it down and then grow it again. And it really just, like, and and some of the scars are still there, but I think some of that kind of works in this first book. It kind of, it, in some ways, it does kind of fit what I was going for. Of a, you know, and it's weird, you know, like, so many of the rules of writing are, like, you know, your character must want this and you want them to be action-oriented and know what they're after. And really with the things I was examining and like the flaws of a kind of jaded character who drinks too much and, and beats themselves <laughs> up and, you know, was to kind of let, you know, in some ways have Fetch not be that guy to begin with and like that his own being caught up in his own guilt and his internal world made him not the best detective. Um, and so I think it allows for a bunch of 
those little wonders I got to go on with the first one. Um, then from after that, then, hey, you know, it's great. It's like, okay, you know, I'm going to sell the first book. It's coming out. I really, the second one was a lot more planned. And going forward, I think, especially, yeah, I think things, my outlines are becoming deeper, more intricate, and that's to live up to really both genres. Um, the first one, yeah, it was kind of, the first one in some ways was trying not to give you exactly what you wanted from either of those genres, partly because I expected many books with this character and wanted him to grow and, and also, and to highlight some of the flaws, I guess, of when you become too <laughs> worried about yourself instead of other people and uh, the things you should be doing, that it, yeah, it, that kind of sends you on tangents, sends you on tangents, and it maybe means you might miss things, and maybe means that yeah, you, you're not doing your job properly or be doing the good you actually want to do because it's all about you and that gets in the way of a lot of things. Um, we're going forward as Fetch hopefully uh, gets better at, at what he's trying to do and has more people guiding him and the kind of maybe overarching story starts to take over from the individual cases. Uh, I think, yeah, things need to be planned out a bit more. Things need to be interwoven a bit more and build in the right way. So yeah, going forward, I've really been outlining things within an inch of their life. <laughs> um, but, but there is kind of, I feel like I still find with Fetch though, that the plot I can like has to be really tight and you want to know, how what everyone else is doing and what all their plans are. But I don't always know how Fetch is going to react to it. And that's what keeps it fresh for me is that I kind of, as much as I can go like, well, this is going to happen, it'll encounter this and that, that'll lead him here. His internal journey I can pre-plan to a degree, but I also then have to be ready to change that if something more interesting happens for him. And so I found that with the second book a lot is that I thought I knew what it was about. I thought I knew how he'd be affected by things and it ended up being quite different. And so that's kind of how I work really is get the, the plot and the antagonists and everyone structured quite tightly and then, you know, give room for Fitz to react to things in his own way as things happen. So Luke, uh, you don't know me, but I am a curriculum scholar and a teacher and a recovering academic. And <laughs> what I did not expect to find in a fantasy noir novel was this absolutely beautiful treatise about school and the purpose of school um, and the way that schools function, you know, in a in a broken society or in a post-apocalyptic event. Um, you captured that beautifully. And I'm just, I'm really curious, was was there something that inspired the the school or the school's role in that world? Because I want to take it to all of the teacher prep programs and be like, y'all need to read this because oh. this is this is right. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's really amazing. But and, and it's funny, you're actually the second um, kind of interview I've done with a teacher who said a similar thing. And I wonder, I, I, I don't have an exact way. I don't think there's something I was trying to say, I guess, about yeah, schooling and academia and stuff in intentionally, but I do think it's wrapped up with a bit of the whole idea that Overall, I think there is a bit of an examination, especially in the first book. But going over the whole thing is like, I mean, because lots of people, of course, will draw um, 
draw links between, okay, this magic world, you know, the world where the magic's died and that's got to do with, you know, the environment and uh, the climate and things like that. Um, but I think for me, a lot of what's going on in the first book is a feeling I have is that when you're young, uh, the world seems magical. And then as you get older, uh, you start to like, and I, I think there are, there are then choices you make. Well, there's partly things you're taught and then partly choices you make where you cut that off. And you, that growing up involves a kind of like, no, no, this is how you should do things and this is what you should ignore and this is the kind of person you should be and this is what makes you cool or this is what makes you a man or, or these kind of things. And you, and you make these choices and then at a certain point you turn around and realise that things don't feel that magical anymore. But you kind of are pretty sure it's your fault. <laughs> like it was kind of your choices. And so I think that kind of being one of the ideas then led very much that brought both the things you're taught into both the school we have in Sunder, as well as the things he's taught in Weatherly where he grew up. Um, and so I don't think I had something particular I was trying to say or examine, I guess so much through schooling, uh, but that idea brought, I guess, brought the school into it. And then the fact he was at a school, which I guess just started as a way, like, I think I threw that in there just cause it felt like a good way to get, someone has to be explained what happened to the world and doing it at a school kind of mm-hmm. made sense. So I was just using it as that kind of expositional cheat. Um, and so it, it's one of those ones where I, I think then I guess by having it there, I threw a bunch of things in the way I maybe see school and learning and things like that. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I probably sound a bit uh, not specific about this because it wasn't something I was intentionally going to say something about, but uh, yeah, you're the second teacher mm-hmm. I've talked to who, who liked the things that came out of it. So I might even have to go back and, and re-examine <laughs> some of the things I was saying, <laughs> but I'm glad it resonated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, things happen accidentally all the time, I find, in writing. I've had books that I've gone back to after the fact and and been like, oh, wow, that is so very much there. And yet I didn't intend it. So one of the things that, that I always say when I'm talking about writing is that the interpretation really is up to the reader. Like what we as authors mm-hmm. actually intend, um, we may not consciously be aware of it. I think it always comes through us. It flows through us. But if we were consciously aware of all the things we were doing, it would just be overwhelming to, to do that. Completely. And I think you have to trust that it, the things just going on in, I, I don't know how to write with the thing I want to say, like going like, well, here's a lesson, lesson I want people to learn because I, I don't think there's anything I know for sure in life, <laughs> but I, I hopefully think the questions that I ask myself and the way I ask them have some interest and can be shared. And by, and that's more interesting to me is going like, hey, isn't this kind of interesting? Or, hey, this is what keeps me up at night. And going down those roads through a character and then through a bunch of characters and sharing the questioning to me is, is more interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, and that's kind of, I guess, the leap of faith you take sometimes when you write something is going like, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say here, like as far as and like a, a statement that you could put a bow around. But I do think examining this is interesting and maybe I have some interest. I'm looking at it through some interesting angles and digging up certain things that 
might be interesting to show people. And so, and especially with, with Fetch, uh, especially at Fetch, with Fetch in his first book, it was a way of going like, just going around and digging things up and yeah, trying to look at them from different angles and see if other people responded to that. And what's been great is that so many people have, and it's so gratifying when people highlight excerpts or find bits in there that they're like, oh, this really, yeah, do that thing where they're like, oh, I'm thinking that, but I'd never put it into these words. And that's really great. And it's, and sometimes you do find people who obviously aren't asking those questions <laughs> and you do it. That's just like, Oh, like, or don't struggle with the same things and therefore don't get the point of certain parts of it or certain things going on. You're like, Hey, great. Like I often you go like, Oh, I envy you. I'm glad that kind of stuff doesn't worry you, but it's you really nice. Going- haunted by <laughs> ex- existence. Good for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or go like, Oh, and you like, you can't, you don't connect to a character who knows what they should do, but cannot seem to get up the next day and just do it, that, it, that, that their own internal struggle like hampers them at every step of the way. Great, fantastic. Like, I'm glad you respond more to those characters who, yeah, get, get their mission and sleep on it and, you know, do one, you know, kind of have one conversation. They're like, you know what, I will go save the world and, and, and do that. Like, absolutely fine. I, uh, but it's, it's nice that there are enough people out there who seem to be responding to a character who, yeah, just who feels kind of turmoil with everything and especially, and every call to action gets stuck in the, but why me and why don't I make things worse and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's, and, and it's trying to keep it there as, as I plan the books going forward and as Fetch starts to evolve is, is kind of keep pouring all of my own existential crisis into fetch. Uh, but it was kind of the idea of the first book of like, let a bunch of just my meandering thoughts about things um, filter into fetch as he wanders around and struggles with what the hell he should be doing. You know, and, and I guess as our world seems to break a little more, it only <laughs> maybe makes fetch's struggles. Uh, yeah. More connected to everyone else and what we're all going through. Yeah, exactly. I think we're all connecting much more with a post-apocalyptic universe uh, than maybe we had before. (laughs) Um, Yeah, absolutely. I know. God. Uh, One thing that I found really interesting, um, I read an uh, an interview that you had done where you talked about how you were inspired by Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, um, that they kind of um, informed, you know, your early writing and the the inspiration for this. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing when I teach is I I tell people that it's okay to take inspiration, like talent borrows, genius steals, you know, and eventually, even if you're taking inspiration from something else, you know, you're going to create something that is different because you're going to inject yourself into it. So it was funny because when I read Last Smile, I didn't think about Terry Pratchett. But when I saw that article, I was like, oh, I can see it now. Like the the Ankh-Morpork, you know, I mean, I can see it in there in Sunder City, you know. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of interested in, um, in the connection there and the way that Pratchett's work inspired you and how you funneled that into something that was that essentially became very different from, but you can kind of see that inspiration. Yeah, I think I think I actually first got introduced to it by playing uh, on PlayStation. There was a Discworld mm-hmm. game where you were rinsewind and going mm-hmm. around. You know, it's a point and click adventure. Um, and 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 I think as well, I didn't read a lot of like real fantasy growing up. 
um, like dad started to read Lord of the Rings to me one time when I was really young and we kind of peed it off just because getting through that first chunk was like, <laughs> like we were kind of getting through it, but it just like, it wasn't. And, and also he, my dad reads heaps, but fantasy was never a big thing for him. And I think a few times I had that where I'd pick up and it might've been my age. It might've been the things that, that I picked up. Like, you know, you'd see a, a cover of some fantasy novel that, that seemed like a great adventure, but then I, you'd kind of get in and on the first page it would give me all these names of, you know, dead Kings and lands that I it was just like, it was just, it was like, <laughs> this is too much for me. I, I want to like, I'm always more interested in character. And there, so there was something about them when I found Pratchett that I was like, Oh, this is my kind of fantasy. Like it, it's about the because it, it always feels like it's about the ideas and everything else is there to explore these ideas through these characters. And that takes precedence over long passages on how the history or the technology came to be, you know, and, and those things are only in there if they relate to the theme or the idea being presented. Um, and, and so, I, and also it kind of is, a you know, like, uh, Sunder City, it's a mashup of different fantasy creatures taken from different places, thrown in there. Um, and so I think it was a little bit that I probably saw where some people see like their idea of a fantasy world is that very Tolkien-esque or, you know, can come from different areas. I think mine very much came from, oh, this is a fantasy world. And so in my head, that's kind of how I, my default fantasy world was Aunt Mortbook, I guess. Um, and then I, and so, and I do think my first little short stories that I wrote, you know, when I was in high school, were probably really borrowing heavily from Pratchett. Were really taking a bit more of his, you know, mimicking more his comic tone and, and, and a bit of the lightness, I think, um, which was great to, to start me writing and to start, you know, exploring this world. Um, and then I think it was, there, but and then I, I think it was the noirness of it all that really kind of where I found my point of difference. Going like, okay, cool, I can still keep a few of the things I like about that world and those those inspirations I took there. But then it was really with yeah that first book going like, okay, but let's let's actually let's just go deeper. Let's really sit with this guy and let's also maybe enjoy some of the disappointing elements of noir. <laughs> I guess the fact that things, let's play with the expectations of, because it's interesting when you pick up a fantasy book, there are certain expectations you have. And I have found it interesting with some of the reviews where people really like count the amount of battles, you know, and, and things like that. Go, oh, that's a, like, that was interesting to go like, oh, wow. Some people really pick up a book going like, okay, I'm expecting this many big battle mm -hmm. scenes. You know, and if it's fantasy, yeah. they expect that. And then it's going like, oh, wrong, like wrong book for you, but also <laughs> how fun. <laughs> because, and, and that is a kind of continuous thing with this. If the, and it, it, I'm really kind of exploring the one I'm, I'm starting on now. That idea that it would be so much simpler if you could solve things by picking up a sword. <laughs> you know, and, and the, the, that's how things that once you go like, you know what, I will, I'll, I'll train and I'll go into battle and I'll cut off someone's head and that'll bring peace to the realm. You know, it's like, that is, I think was really interesting of examining violence and heroism in that way. And that there are no 
good and bad people or actions potentially, that it's all in the gray area. And, you know, that, and, and, and yeah, I won't, it's always interesting talking about theme when you either, either people haven't read it or you haven't written the stuff yet. <laughs> but yeah, but that generally being <laughs> that, I, I don't know, that idea really then I think is what led me away from just being, I guess, a Pratchett mimic and taking it down mm-hmm. some meaner streets. Uh, yeah. That, so I think that was it. But at the beginning, it was very much just a, you know, put, chuck some Chandler into a Pratchett world and have fun <laughs> with that. And yeah, and as you said, you, you end up finding just because of the way our minds are all different, if you're actually honest with what's going on in your head, that will take you away from just following down yeah. the path that someone else has already walked. Well, it was, it was really interesting um, reading, especially because you read the book, like you narrated it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm listening to you read me, you know, this this book and I laughed and I was intrigued and you had, you know, all of these great elements in there and it was so fast paced and just I mean tight like all of the the writing is is you don't waste any words. But your prose is also beautiful. Um and so I'm I'm just curious like that that's a high skill set for a debut novel. Um, so, you know, obviously you have a lot of talent. I'm really curious, what's the hardest part? Like, what did you struggle with? Because I got to tell you, man, you make it look real easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Thank you. That's a, that's a lot of lovely things. Thank you so much. Um, I, it, did you, when you talk about the pros, I do think, and, and having done the audiobook, like I do, even if I hadn't done the audiobook, I say this whole thing out loud. And because I do, that's, I think, what's most important to me and what, and what kind of drives me is that, well, maybe not most important, but really what stick to is, is the rhythm and that kind of alliteration and things. And that just, it has to, the rhythm of the whole thing has to sing and it has to flow. And I think you really find that by saying it out loud, like that, that each, you know, there's a thing um, like in acting, something a voice teacher told me, which was always great to go back to, was like, every idea is a breath. Like as an actor, you shouldn't, like we never in life, even though we stop and start, we never, we always take enough air for the thing we want to say. Like never in real life do we run out of air halfway through. Um, So good writing, since people talk and think like that, that should always happen as well. Like you shouldn't have a thought on the page that can't be said in a single breath, you know, or, but also, and also those breaths relate to the thought change. So, and because this is all first person and I like the idea that this, that these books are fetch having had too many drinks at a bar telling these stories to a trusted friend. Like that's the kind of idea I wanted from it. So it, it should feel like it could be spoken. And then you want it also, I think, especially the noir genre, you know, that hard boiled detective thing allows you to play with the prose in a lot of ways that both in the similes, but also the kind of way you can bite down on the rhythm of the words. Um, and so that being, and so, and I do find the dialogue of it all that and the dialogue in the back and forth is, um, is really fun. So that's kind of where I have the most joy with it. Um, which is, yeah, which is then interesting We've ever, ever have to step out of Fetch's, like, because I don't really step out of Fetch's point of view, but, you know, you sometimes write bits from certain other people. That can be a bit, that's always an interesting jump where you're not filtering it through Fetch as exactly. But um, I think maybe, 
I think that the toughest thing about it is about, especially writing first person with Fetch, is and wanting and actually going the whole thing being a little bit of a, sometimes a criticism of being like Fetch and thinking like Fetch. Mm -hmm. And that maybe the idea of who he wanted to be is not someone we should want to be and the decisions he made uh, maybe not right and he's still got a lot of problems that it would be great if you went to therapy for that are getting <laughs> in the way of him doing the right thing. But because I can't really... I'm so in his head, he can't, and if he's aware of that, it's all over. Like his, his lack of awareness is kind of crucial to it. So I think that is really the hardest thing of going, how do you signpost some of those things or at least clue the reader into going, hey, you're not meant to agree with everything this guy thinks, like, mm -hmm. or, or everything he does without breaking the voice. Uh, and so that's really crucial of getting kind of beta readers in. And, and in some parts, like in some ways, I'm surprised how much people like Fetch or are really behind him in certain things in book one. You're like, oh, really? It's like, okay. And some of that, but I think that's kind of fun too. In some ways you go like, okay, going forward, maybe we'll be able to like find some moments where another character brings things up to him or he realizes things and you're like, actually that is pretty horrible, you know, but <laughs> you're so with him in the first book that you're going along with it. Oh, that's really sad. And this, and later on you're like, actually, no, you're right. It was, it was kind of, that was kind of weird and selfish and you know, it's good. You're getting over that. So I think that line I find the hardest sometimes that sometimes you can think that you're putting enough little posts in there to go like, this is maybe a, don't worry. I know this is a little problematic or troublesome and that the audience might not get that. Or sometimes a reader will think like that I'm standing by everything <laughs> that Fetch is thinking and doing when that isn't the case. Um, and yeah, it's so, and then I guess it has been a lot of, it has been learning the expectations of readers, I guess, mm -hmm. and, and how to play with that in a way that is effective, but doesn't, you know, annoy people or distract from what you really want to be doing. Um, and the, but this first one, I, I like, I wrote it so many times, like wrote it and rewrote it so many times. And I guess a lot of it to find that, that rhythm and that, that tightness in the approach you're talking about. So it all feels like, you know, like when I sat down to do the audio book and we went through it, it, it was nice to in the moment go like, uh, this all works. Like this, this does kind of sing to a certain degree when it's, you know, performed um so that was really great and hopefully when i sit down to do the second one it'll it'll feel the same we'll see <laughs> well it's funny one of the things that we uh like to do here a lot at chipper is just talk about like what our favorite part is and i have to tell you mm -hmm. um when i first read this i think i, I had the first like twenty five thousand words or something like the first like quarter of the mm -hmm. book or whatever um and i was reading through it and i remember thinking it was really good you know um and really enjoying it and then there was this point where he's at the governor's mansion and he sees Amari <laughs> and she's wooden and she's peeling and she's broken and like everything. And it was, that was the moment that I knew that this book, um, it was not just good, but it was special. Like there was something, there was something so beautifully heartbreaking in the way that she was described. And I still, to this day, have this visual image, her roots digging down into the ground there, and she's unmovable and yet disintegrating with every, you know, when, whenever there's a storm or anything, it like breaks him a little bit. Um, 
All of that is so beautiful. And it is such a wonderful expression of Fetch's vulnerability, which I think is the key to why even when he's wrong, we can still love him because you express that vulnerability so beautifully. Um, but there's one line, though, that I got to tell you, which is my, one of my favorite expressions of love in a novel ever. And it's just this one line where he says, even now, her skin peeling off in sheets, her body a broken stump. She was the toughest damn thing I ever saw. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to use that with my students. That is the best way of saying I loved her, like, ever. It was such a beautiful way to express that. And um, so I wanted to let you know, first of all, that you have a very deep appreciator of what you did there, because that was amazing, right? So, so good. Thank you. <laughs> um, and also, like, how did you write this without it pulling your heart out of your body still beating? Like... <laughs> It's so good. It, I have it. Thank you. I know yeah. that bit. That's one of the, that is one of those bits where you go, that is such a kernel of the whole oh, thing, mm-hmm. you know, as a, a, and I don't know where I, I think that was in the first thing I bashed out as part of it. And it, just, <laughs> it is, and yeah, that it, and it does like both that part and especially when we we kind of get a, a flashback later on that's, mm-hmm. you know, in the same location, that that one always does kind of like I get choked up when I go back and reread it or like had to work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that is, that's one of the things that, I mean, that is, that is kind of the, it, it, that does feel like the exact right meeting of both these genres too because it's mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. deep in, the fantasy side of things like it's it, it's completely talk you know it's a she's you know a wood nymph that this you know this is who she was and now and all these stuff's growing out of her so it's so fantastical mm-hmm. but it also is right because right in that kind of indulgence of that it's a thing about those those chandler detective stories and because it, it's interesting there, and there are a few of them but i think something chandler did is there was such romance there mm-hmm. it, that is often forgotten. Like we've seen so many versions of the hardball detective since. And it's the thing that annoys me most when I see it forgotten is that people seem to take the exterior of this character, mm-hmm. of this, this type of character. But, you know, it's like, but when you go back to like, um, you know, the beauty of Bogey and Casablanca is like, I think the more cynical someone is, the more romantic they must have been. Mm-hmm. And that, right. that moment you get the flashback there yes. and they're in Paris and he's popping champagne. You're like, oh, of course, that's how you become that guy. Is you right. must have really loved. <laughs> you can't be cynical if you weren't an idealist or a romantic at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was kind of maybe what was, what really went like, okay, we're really going to sit in this and, and do it relatively early is mm-hmm. go like, no, like he's this broken because he was this much of a just a open-hearted, like, yeah, like, yeah, rom- just romantic young man who fell so deeply and felt so deeply. And that's how you get to become this, yeah, just like self-medicating, drinking, <laughs> you know, stumbling around guy that he is in the present day. Um, and, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, it's, and it's it is nice to have that there, and it's nice to have landed in that early. I think it's my writing of discovering where to go from there. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know what to say about it. I'm glad you liked it so much. I'm glad that bit stands up. That's usually the bit that I kind of sent as a kind of sample and send to people because, and, and then it's always one of those bits when you have to, it's interesting going forward where he's got to go back to that mansion at other points and you go like, well, how do we get in there again? But um, so yeah, so it's, I, I, it's interesting because we, he, uh, it'll be interesting to see what you think of when he visits back in, um, in the second book. Cause you know, you can't do it exactly the same, but have to twist things as we go forward. So that has been the only downside to that part is having to kind of live up to that <laughs> every time right. he goes back to that place. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's very unusual for me as a reader to have my favorite part be the end of a book. Um, like in general, like, yes, I love how this ended, but yours, like the actual closing scene, because you took this, you know, broken, cynical, big guy and, you know, you put him through hell and then you're, you're closing with him reading a book and staying up all night to read this book um, and then going down and having like this moment with this one person in this cafe with this one cup of coffee. And, and as I was reading this, you know, he, he had this perfect cup of coffee and right now that's all he has. And he has that experience to, to have that time as a reader. And for so many of us right now, like in this current apocalypse, whatever, that that is kind of it. Like you, I had a cup of coffee and a book today and I was grateful for it. Um, so, but I'm just, I'm really curious about that, that tone or that ending and what that meant for you. Cause it was great. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that means a lot. Cause that, that is, that is really tough where your where your overarching ideas. Someone else who one of my beta readers said something about um, my kind of cynicism of easy heroics or something like that. Uh, something like that. I go, and that's it. It can be tough to stick the landing when you're kind of challenging not to rely on when the point is it can't be. It can never be too big. It can never be too satisfying. It can, nothing can ever be tied up in a bow because that's not how things work. And I think especially when you are, and I do think a lot, I think, I do think a lot about what the hell do we do? And this is before this current state of events right now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've been bouncing around, you know, this started in South Africa and then like I started kind of writing really the first version of this one was South Africa and then been living in Australia, UK and America. And while these are some very like lucky places where you can just go along and live a good life, if you pay attention to what's actually going on, like all around the world, but and, and in these countries and in our backyards and what our leaders are doing in our name and it, it's really complicated stuff. And especially as then you get a, a voice and whether it's on social media or working with particular organizations or, you know, you end up as I've got to do is like you go to parties with politicians or media people and they're around you and like, what the hell do I do? Like, and it's, you know, you could, we sit, you know, so often you could sit there with really bright minds and really interesting people and whether it's people with, with money or with influence and you're talking about like, or, you know, either have that or don't. And you're like, what, do we have a revolution? Do we go, is it like, do we have to break it all to start it up again? Or is it like, no, you have to, you know, hopefully you go along and you work with people who are in power and you try and change things bit by bit. I don't know. Like, but I think that, I, but it's not, it's never simple. And it's not exactly that 
in the first book, it's not exactly that grand with things, but as we go along with the book, say, it, it starts getting a bit more in that world. But even in these, just these little, it, but really coming back to like, what, what do you do to do good? Like for your country, for the world, for people around you, for your community. It's usually, it does seem to be more, it's small things and it really is how you treat the people you come in contact with. And so I think at, at the end, so which, yeah, so which I think is hopefully interesting for those people who do pick up this book, ready to count the big battles and expecting, <laughs> you know, a certain thing that that was, it was kind of trying to be a tonic for that, I guess, for the expectations of, because we know early on there's a point where Fetch gets all geared up and his blood's running hot and he thinks he's on the trail of some bad guys and wants to go beat the crap out of them. And it turns out not to be that simple. And which, and it's meant to be a little unsatisfying and it is for Fetch and it is for the reader. We get like, but that's kind of what it is. Like there's very few people in the world that we could go out and beat the crap out of and actually go like, you know what? That was a hundred percent the right thing to do. And I did a good thing by doing that. <laughs> that solves you know, everything, right? That solves everything. <laughs> Look, you know, racism fixed, you know, or, you or whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. So I think that's it. But, but I, I know that makes me very happy that you, you had that feeling at the end because it is tough when you're to write, when you can't rely on the, and, and I think because having done some screenwriting, like, you can balance all like, here's the beginning, here's the end, here's what they're struggling with. Now they've solved that. And you, you sometimes want to make sure they're leaving the, you know, leaving the, the viewing as feeling as triumphant and perfectly like, Oh, look at that. They got exactly where they went to and that solved everything. But I think a novel's different. And especially this novel and this character is different where you go, no, it's, it's, it, I don't, it, trying to leave you sitting somewhere else. That's a bit more contemplative but that maybe feels you makes you feel a bit more okay about the fact we don't wake up every day and save the world. Mm -hmm. When we like, I think we all know we're all told a bunch of things like, Hey, you know what? If doing these 10 things would make the world a better place. Like <laughs> you give up these things, do these positive things. You're like, great. And you go, go to bed so many nights going, you know what? I am going to do that. And we don't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there are many reasons yeah. why we don't. And some of them we should get over. And some of them you just have to accept that like, that's just not how it works, unfortunately, because we're dealing with all this other crap. And there are other people who are <laughs> not immediate just because, yeah. It's, so anyway, it's all that complicated stuff. So that was really the ending of trying to find Lee Fetch in a place that isn't completely tragic while also, you know, knowing we weren't going to fix the world by the end of this first book, if mm -hmm. ever. If ever, right. But the thing is, is that, you you know, I, I think this is what I find so satisfying about that kind of story is that it's, it's, it's why you fight, like not because you're going to necessarily win the day in one big battle and boom, that's over. Sauron's gone and we're back in the Shire and everything's great. Um, you know, that, that you keep fighting because what you're fighting for is worth the fight as opposed to you fight because there's going to be this big heroic moment and people are going to put a statue of you up because you beat up the right person, you know? Um, so I, th I find that kind of complexity so satisfying in your work um, because it does, and, and especially in a noir setting, which is inherently gritty, which is inherently, I mean, noir, basically broken people, broken world. There you go. Have some fun. Right. You know, um, yeah. that's what makes noir tick, you know? So to to have that, I think, in this novel 
is in its own way really satisfying because it basically celebrates the fact that you screw up, but you keep trying. You don't give up. You know, you don't stop. And that's, I think... What what I find so satisfying about that that kind of story. Um, one thing I'm interested in, though, is that um, coming back to Black Sales, right? Um, there you are, young man, starring on this show, which honestly is one of the best written shows. I mean, I'm I've watched a Absolutely. lot of shows. I've talked about a lot of shows. I haven't really talked about Black Sales much, um, but it is one of the best written shows, not to mention the fact that, like, first of all, you as as Long John Silver have one of the best arcs. Uh, we talked about character arcs recently. Like, yeah. Oh, my yeah, God, right. it's amazing. So, like, here you are interpreting this as an actor, right? And actors mm-hmm. are also writers, to I believe, to a certain degree, because yeah. you take that dialogue and you interpret it and you kind of, it's like a balloon that you blow up, you know, and you make it mm-hmm. into the shape that it's going to be. Um, so there's always that element. But here you are, you know, working on this show, this incredible dialogue, this incredible character work, playing one of the best character arcs that have ever happened in television. And, and congratulations to you for getting that gig, by the way. And you were amazing. Oh, no, in it. thank you. <laughs> How, very, but, and very lucky. So it's amazing. But sorry. So <laughs> incredible. No, uh, what, uh, what I love, too, is that this, this show ends up becoming a story about the power of story, which is just incredible. Mm. So to be, to be a writer working in that environment with these unbelievable writers, how did that influence your own writing and your own process? Yeah, I, it, being around the people I was around in that was not to be around them, but to be in conversations, having proper real character conversations and be listened to and validated and kind of when you're talking with, with John Steinberg, Robert Levine, Dan Schott's, let alone then going in between and, and drinking beers with Toby Schmitz and talking about it all, who is also one of the oh, most man. amazing creative minds. Um, because he's also, yeah, a playwright and uh, just, just everything. Oh, he's, he's, so he's, he's a genius. So incredible. Yeah, yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> so to be around, to be working on that show with those guys and to be having full-on conversations about, yeah, character theme, history, you know, the genre, all the stuff, all the time, and being able, and then putting that into the show is an amazing confidence boost to going like, you know, it feels like like to hold your own with people that you go like, you guys are the greatest, but I, I think I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm in this, okay. Like, it, I think that was a great confidence boost to then trusting my writing, also a huge inspiration. Because mm-hmm. yeah, you're just around, yeah, great minds talking about story and, and the importance of story and, and what we were doing every day felt like, like I always say, it was everyone on that show went out every day to make the best show on television. And it's so, it's, it's rarer than it should be, mm-hmm. you know, and especially as time goes on, you know, people get complacent or... You don't, or, you know, it only takes a couple of people who aren't really there for that, for the thing to go like, okay, it's a job and we're, we're working. But the absolute passion and drive to make that show amazing was present from everyone in every department. Um, and I, like I showed some writing to John and Dan uh, uh, and, and Robert early on and that they really responded to. This was like a, a pilot for something they got excited about. So very early on we entered a kind of like, 
it felt like, okay, we're all writers hanging out. And, and I, I mean, and, and they, we, we were really work because the scripts were so good. It was a kind of show where we did work off the scripts, but they were so dense and complex that we did something that I don't know if any other show has done where two weeks before we would rehearse with, so the actors pretty much, we'd come in off book. We'd go in with the directors and the writers and onto the set and we'd rehearse it like a play. And it, cause the thing about a show, even most shows, but the show definitely as big as black sales is the setup for every scene is astronomical. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's like, you know, let alone the, you know, 300 extras you've got and all the animals, you've also got like 11 green screens on cranes that have to, if we're on the ships that have to kind of fold in behind you in this kind of weird Tetris thing that they all create. So if you decide as an actor, and, and that also often has to be getting set up like while we're in makeup, because that's a whole process. Um, but even before it's like the way the ship is facing and, the, and where we are seated on it, can change everything. Like, hey, you just like, here's the way the wind is blowing affects things, but also where all the stuff is behind. What's it, Anyway, it's, it's crazy. So you can't come on even on the morning and go like, cool, so I thought I'd be sitting here and I'd get up on this line. They're like, mm. yeah, okay, we're going to lose three hours if you want to do that. Um, and so you end up getting very boxed in. This happens on most TV, like even just because you have to move so fast that they usually have to set things up before the actors are on set and you have to work within a certain confined thing. Um, so that's what doing these rehearsals allowed us to run it like a play. And this didn't have to be done and it couldn't be done well if everyone wasn't committed to it, but we were. So on top of the crazy shooting schedule and the fight training and being in the gym like Mad Men, we had these <laughs> rehearsals that really allowed us to own it. And it also gave a moment for us to work on the script with the writers there and if something kind of didn't work or if we had an idea, you could go like, okay, you know, it, it didn't have to be like, hey, come up with a line now. It, it gave time for the writers to go, okay, actually, no, that is interesting. Let me think on it. And over the two weeks, they can fine tune things, make the most of a moment. They can also build a prop that we've decided, you know, like could be good in the scene. They could also go, hey, get us, you know, actually we're in the wrong, we should be up on deck or we should be down below or we should be somewhere else. And we could do all that with the creative freedom. So it, it did mean we were in a space that was just so creative and really, and, you know, John and everyone, they were really open to our input at all times and our thoughts and they really trusted us and we trusted them. So, I mean, that was really fertile ground to start to really dig into my own stuff, except I was generally so busy that the, and so creatively satisfied. Really for the first time in a while, I wasn't doing a lot of my own writing for most of Black Sales because like, I, I didn't need anything else. It was really when I, like right at the end, that as we were finishing up season four and as for the first time, I, you know, in a long time, I didn't have these huge monologues of John Steinberg's speech, you know, parody speech to learn that, but I was so used to all this creative energy was built up and it had been fueled that I just kind of launched straight into the book then. Cause it, and, and also I was, yeah, was so, as an actor, I was like, I'd done that. And I'd done this mini series back home about in excess where I got to play. Like it was, it was my dream role. So I kind of, I was at a point where I was like, you know what, if it ended here, like as an actor, I'm pretty happy. Like I've done more than I ever thought I'd do. 
but felt very validated and, and driven creatively. So it was, it perfectly launched me into going, you know what, after, like afterwards I pretty much locked myself away for those first few months and got the first draft done. And it just gave me that inspiration and confidence to really flow through with that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that, that led into that. I was really lucky. And I also had some, you know, cash in the bank, which was, yeah. I think that a lot of writers don't have is where you mm-hmm. go like, you know what, I can lock myself away, you know, and quite prepared that like, okay, it's probably a good time to put the pedal to the metal for auditions and get another role. But it was like, mm-hmm. no, I think I, it's the time to do this other thing. So um, I was really lucky in a lot of ways that that job prepared me perfectly to, you know, becoming a novelist. Sorry, that was a long rambling no, answer to, I to it. No, no, it's it fascinating. It. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So what are you working on now? So working on now, I am, the second book is pretty much those proofs are going to the printer soon. So the sequel is essentially done and dusted and coming out into the world shortly. Um, I'm third one and third one is very planned and thinking beyond. So not exactly dive. Well, I'm kind of diving into that, but officially that's not exactly underway. Um, I've, it's, it's interesting recently I've been working on a couple, developing a couple more kind of TV film projects. Uh, nothing that's actually mm-hmm. getting major shit. Cause that's an interesting time in the world. Uh, we'll, <laughs> right. we'll see, see what happens there. <laughs> um, essentially look, uh, the goal is really just to keep these, you know, fetch, uh, fetch Phillips stories ticking along. Um, as a writer while, yeah. So I, the last thing I did acting wise is a show called The End that we shot mm-hmm. in Australia, but it was a co-production with Sky Atlantic. So it's aired in the UK, um, but it's soon to air in Australia and hopefully it'll come out in the States soon, mm-hmm. which was a really interesting kind of fam- dark, you know, dark drama comedy family story that centers around, centers around um, you know, assisted you know, sister dying debate and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it was a really interesting show to work on and, and is really great. Also uh, starring Harriet, Dame Harriet Walter, who was in Black Sails as well. Yeah. She was mm-hmm. old Grandma Guthrie at the end. Um, <laughs> so act, that's probably the next thing that people could see me in acting wise. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I'm, look, I just want to keep writing these stories, you know, branch out to other things as I go. But I feel like I'll probably get a couple more in this world done first before I start doing novels and other side of things. Um, but, and it was always the plan anyway to, like was developing things in LA, but the plan, the long-term plan had always been to kind of, at some point get back to Australia and do some film and TV stuff. Um, my brother's a, a filmmaker and, and does kind of effects and, and is a cameraman and does all that kind of side of things, which lets me kind of be do the, both the writing and the acting and him do the other stuff. We've been doing that for ages and, got lots of other people here so it feels like I probably won't be traveling as much as I used to so I <laughs> yeah you know we're all as we're rejigging things it might be like trying to get some things like might be the right time to with my community of creatives here in Australia actually get some things ticking over and get back to making our own things yeah I've, I've got a short film that I wrote directed in London that you know was about to start the film circuit but mm-hmm. a lot of them aren't happening so that a lot of them will be pushed back but yeah, it's, it's, you know, just creating a whole bunch of stuff really. Um, but I guess the next thing that people look out for is either the last mile of people haven't read or listened to it. And then mm-hmm. dead man in a ditch, the sequel that hopefully is still coming out in October this year. Uh, well, I can't yeah, wait. I have to say the state <laughs> of the world is a very terrifying thing, but if it keeps you writing, then I'm just looking at that as a bright side. <laughs> 
That's, yeah, no, I, that is, it's interesting. I think a lot of people have been these first couple of weeks going like, great, I'll sit down to write and our minds are just, uh, you know, watching the news and checking in with everyone. But I have been, like, I have been ticking away and Mm -hmm. is it like, the weird thing is like, personally, my life isn't too, I don't know how you're finding it. My life isn't that different (laughs) to what it is now. Like, but usually my, I, like I'm usually a lot on my own and kind of have to run my days between getting up, writing, then putting down some auditions and, you know, dropping into the acting world for things and, you know, trying to keep fit for all that. So I kind of had that cycle, but my reward is usually then you go, okay, then I reach a breaking point and you go like, cool. Then you go out and you have, you know, I have to refill with that kind of social thing. So that's the tough thing at the moment is that you, those rewards are kind of taken away and Mm-hmm. It's different for every, you know, on top of all the other uncertainty, that's kind of the thing for me that you go like, oh, I, have to, I, I kind of had worked out a good way of how I keep myself productive, mm-hmm. but, you know, and, and can write every day and keep that. But that's working out how to do that in this new environment. It's going to be strange. And kind of everyone has their own, you know, that's the smallest of complications that a lot of people have, especially those with families or with, you know, whose actual other income has been taken away at the moment. It, it's kind of scary around. Um, for me, it was kind of always that uncertain. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's also the thing that hasn't come yet because usually you go like, oh, and I do that until an acting job comes along and then that balances everything out and um, who knows when that's all coming up again. So, yeah, it is strange right now, but I am writing and at least can do that. So that is, I'm, I'm very lucky in that way that I can, yeah, at least keep, you know, chipping away at the next book in the strange time. Okay. So what is your favorite part about writing? I think, I think my favorite part about writing is when people take out a little moment that they really connect to. And sometimes it's a bit that I, really intended that I thought like, oh, this is really great. Sometimes it's bits that I was like, oh, I wasn't even, that just came out. I was just getting from, that was just my, <laughs> you know, a little way of him, emo- you know, having a little think about this on the way. But I think that feeling, that's my favorite thing as a reader is when you read, you know, yeah, when you read something someone's written and go like, oh, I, that's exactly how I feel. I'm not alone in thinking like mm-hmm. that. When you, as a writer, when you get that, it's doubly rewarding. So, um, that element of it is really inspiring and really great. It's been a real treat as this book's come out. All right. So, Luke, where can the good people find you? Yes. So, uh, you can find me at Long Luke Arnold on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I'm at LukeArnold.net. I've got a, a kind of underused blog there that I'm going to get back into now that <laughs> we've got some extra time on our hands. Um, but, yeah, The Last Smile in Sunder City, uh, it's our everywhere really um pretty much all around the world right now or you can listen to the audiobook on pretty much on most platforms where you get audiobooks um yeah and then the dead man in a ditch coming uh, later this year can't wait all right well luke thank you so much we really appreciate all the time that you've given us uh, it's been so much fun talking to you it's been so much fun reading the books i'm so grateful that i got to be one of the first people to read this book and to tell other people about it i've been talking yes. about it for years and now i get to say i told you so to everybody um so that is always a, a big delight yes, and actually i can back that up <laughs> because she told me that when i at the time i didn't know anything about your work or the show or anything. And she has been consistently saying, 
This book is so great. You have to read this book. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you again, again and again. It has. Yeah. It was really crucial in for me. Yeah, like moving forward with it, it gave me that first direction, but also, mm-hmm. yeah, better get out there into the world. So, thank you. And, I'm very uh, glad I got to to meet you. Uh, it was so <laughs> much fun to talk to you. Thank you for the time today. Oh, thank you so much. So great to talk with both of you. This has been really great. Oh my god that was so much fun talking to luke he was amazing he was so great that was so much fun and and you know, he's like so much fun to talk to um but i yeah. also really 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 enjoyed his book so i'm so glad we got to read it for for the show before we talked to him I know it was so fantastic and such a fun time. All right, to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Dinerich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and Luke Arnold at Long Luke Arnold, and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. How Story Works and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to play our first draft like an accordion. Visit Patreon.com/Chipperish to find out more. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our May producers, Abigail, Alice, Crimson Glass, Erica, Jonathan, Kristen, Sarah, and Shelly. And this week's special message for our power producers, be honest about what's going on in your head. That will keep you from going down the path that someone else has already walked. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a How Story Works producer. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or keep pouring all of your existential crisis into your characters. <laughs> we'll be back next time with our interview with Josh Siegel, writer and producer on The Good Place. And that is also such a good time. We've had an amazing amount of luck with the interviews that we've gotten this season and how story works. You guys are going to love it. Until then, even now, her skin peeling off in sheets, her body a broken stump. She was the toughest damn thing I ever saw. Mm-hmm.